wow, I don't even feel like I need to preach. I feel like we've been preaching all morning like through <laughs> prayer and art and testimony and music and, and all this stuff. I, I don't even feel like I should be up here. Um, but how, how many of you guys, well, I know you all lived through the 80s, but were anybody a teenager in the 80s? Like, yeah, like a lot of, everybody stood over here, all right, in the, in the 80s. Let me bring you back to the 80s, all right? 1986 in, in particular. I was, I was in ninth grade in, in 1986, and, and I saw the best movie ever made um, this, at this year, um, and it changed my life. I mean, like, I lived through quite possibly the most uncomfortable and awkward time of my life, like in middle school, and I was desperately, like, searching for that key to unlock the door to popularity and athletic prowess and whatever like I needed to secure the love of Angie Jordan, who was the new love of my life. And she, she didn't know it, you know, and never really got to make good on it, you know, but it was very real. So don't laugh. You guys are laughing at, at this. All right. Angie Jordan was hot. Not nearly as hot as my wife. Okay. It ended up good. It, it, it ended up good. It ended well. But um, obviously, that movie in 1986 was what? Caddyshack. It was not Caddyshack. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle nailed it. It was Top Gun. You see that movie in the 80s? Fellas, you know how that changed your life. So I immediately... I'm not kidding about these next few things. I immediately went and bought a poster of an F-14 Tomcat, and I secured it above my bed, all right? This, this was real, all right? And then the next thing that I did is I, I took all of my life savings, literally, and I went to the sunglass company at the mall, all right? <laughs> Ray-Bans were expensive back in the day. You can get cheap ones now. These things were legit. So I went and I got these like Ray-Bans that had like pearls on the side or whatever. And, and I was rocking those Ray-Bans and I had the poster and everything. And I mean, I felt like I was just going to be living for the rest of my life into like leather jackets and dog tags and like shirt off volleyball games and crotch rockets and like the whole thing, inverted flybys and, you know, in international symbols of, you know, the bird or whatever it is. I mean, I just thought I was wrapped up and, and I was like, this, this is my, this is who I am now. You know, this is the ultimate cool. This is going to put me on the map, all right? And so I was going to become a naval aviator, all right? <laughs> it was going to happen, all right? And so I got my act together. I mean, I wanted this so bad. I cleaned up my act. I, I started getting really good grades. I was really trying to excel at sports and, you know, extracurricular activities, all this stuff. It was like an out-of-body experience for my parents, you know, because I was living in this utter rebellion for so long, and then all of a sudden Top Gun came around, and, and it just inspired me deeply in, in my male soul, all right? And so I was like, this, this is going to happen. I, and my way to doing this, I don't know why, but I, I was going to get into the U.S. Naval Academy, all right? And this was going to propel me into Top Gun status, all right? And Lo and behold, like it, it was going pretty well. Like, I mean, it's a long application process and all that. And it's a couple of years and, and you go through and you have to get like a congressional nomination. And 
I slipped through the cracks somehow. I actually got one, you know. I don't, I don't know how. You know, in Iowa, they're like, ah, oh, he seems good. So, um, so I got one, and I was like, I was on my way. And the guys that were, like these naval officers that were, like, walking with me during the time, they, they told me that, that uh, you're in. You get to this stage, you're in. And I was like, this is really happening. Like, I, I am going to become this thing. And I was so wrapped up in it. And I got this letter from the U.S. Naval Academy, you know, and I'll never forget it. I mean, I waited to open it, that thing up, you know. It was just like this major event, and my mom and my sister, you know, were there and all around, and I just proudly, I think I actually pulled out a letter opener, like not just a, a knife, you know, because that wouldn't do. It's like, get me the le- real letter opener, all right? So I opened this letter up and everything, and it was like, you know, we're sorry to inform you that you have not made it into the Naval Academy. And so I was crushed. And I promise not every single talk will will start with these like soul-numbing, crushing stories (laughs) from, from my life, but they just fit in for some reason. They really fit in. And this one is really about that that heartbreak that everybody feels and experiences. And 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 the underlying messages that really start to creep in. And the message is you didn't make it. You're you're not enough. You didn't make the cut. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not successful enough. Whatever it is, you're, you're not enough. You, you're rejected. You're left behind. You, you just don't have what it takes. And, and like I said before, like this is an experience that's really, really human, and we've all faced it and everything. And, and matter of fact, some people would say this is just the way the world works. You know, the cream rises to the top. This is a competition. You know, there's winners and losers, and, and there's haves and, and have-nots, and that's just the way it is. It's a competition. You know, there's the best and there's the rest. So, so deal with it and try to be the best. And you see it like in, in kids' lives, maybe you're experiencing it in your kids' lives, you know, with sports and academics and looks and clothes and popularity and whatever it is, like that competition and those subtle voices that are creeping in starts like super, super early. And what's interesting is, is when I started studying this in Jewish culture like 2,000 years ago, it really wasn't all that different like at the heart. It really wasn't all that different. This is, this is fascinating to me. So from the ages in, of between 6 and 10 in Hebrew culture, these students would go to what's called the house of the book, all right? And at the house of the book, they would literally memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, right? And this is, in my Bible, that's, that, that's like tantamount to like 180 pages. Like, can you imagine your six to 10-year-old memorizing a page, like, I don't know, a sentence, like anything. And these guys are, especially if they're male, I, I mean, these guys are memorizing like these whole books of the Bible from, from six to 10. And, and here's the, how it works, though. If you were the best, all right, in the house of the book, you could then, between the ages of 10 to 14, you could make it into the house of learning. And in the house of learning, you would memorize the rest of the scriptures, which at the time was the Old Testament, right? The Hebrew scriptures, which in my Bible was about another 807 pages. You would memorize those for the next four years, which is unbelievable, you know, to me. And if you were the best of the best out of this house of learning, then you could present yourself to a rabbi. 
and you could present yourself to the rabbi and they would kind of uh, place you under this scrutiny of like ultimate Bible trivia. And if you, they'd ask you all these completely obscure questions, you know, about the scripture that you would only know if you would actually memorize, you know, all of them. And, and get this, if you were the best of the very best, if you were the best of the best, you'd made it through the house of the book, you've made it through the house of the learning, you were the cream of the crop, you were the top, you were the top gun, you know, so to speak. A rabbi would approach you and say two words in, in, in Hebrew, two words that in the English language really make up three words. And you know what those words are? These are the words that every single boy would wait and every single family would wait, pray for these words to be said to theirs. And the words were, you know what they are? You know what the words are? Come follow me. Come follow me. They were waiting for those words. To hear those words would be like getting the acceptance letter into the Naval Academy or Harvard or whatever, to get a draft letter into the NBA or the NFL or whatever it is. Come follow me. Those are the words that they've been waiting for. And you know what happens like if you didn't have what it takes? The rabbi literally would say, go back to your village, work a trade, have babies, and pray that your children would become rabbis. Go home, have babies, and pray that they could do what you could not do. So, you heard the scripture reading today, which for many years, I just, it just, passed over me. So Jesus, he was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw these two brothers, Simon and Peter, and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. They were fishermen. Do you know what that means, that they were fishermen? Do you have any idea what that means? You're starting to get it now. At some point along the line whether it was in the house of the book or the house of learning, or maybe, maybe if they got that far, you know, when they presented themselves to the rabbi, somewhere along the line, they said, sorry, you don't have what it takes. You, you haven't made it. You're not smart enough. You're not bright enough. You don't have the right stuff. You're not good enough for this. So go home, grow up, have babies, work a trade, and pray that maybe your kids can make it because you, you don't. You didn't. So they grew up as fishermen and they lived the rest of their life in, in many ways with this, this quiet narrative inside that said, I, I didn't make it and I don't have enough. So I guess I'll just do this. I'll just settle for this. And then all of a sudden, Jesus walks by, who was a rabbi, who was a teacher of the time. And he says those two words in Hebrew, which in the English language are the three words that their heart has de- and their whole family has desperately longed for. You, you, fisherman, right there. No, not him. I was talking to you. Come and follow me. 
You know what he was saying? Jesus says, I see you and I choose you. I know you. I know the depth of your heart. I know your failures. I know your shortcomings. I know what the world has told you that you weren't able to do. I know it and I see through it and I see so much more in it and I choose you. I choose you. Come follow me. So uh, I, I found it amazing, like the, the testimony that was uh, given this morning, because I, I, I remember uh, for sure the, the, the day that I heard those words, come follow me. And it meant the same thing to me as it did uh, to these fishermen along the Sea of Galilee. So in my story, I had lived out basically the older son, younger son for a long time. I'd done the rebellion thing and I was still in the midst of rebellion when I realized that probably wasn't going to do it. And so I'm just going to earn it and I'm going to excel and I'm going to get in the Naval Academy. I'm going to do all these things. So I eventually, I didn't go to the Naval Academy. I went, went to college and um, I was a work hard, play hard guy, you know? So yeah, I worked hard when I was in college and I was going to get good grades and make something of myself or, and, and, you know, contribute to society somehow. But I was also doing what I wanted, you know, on the weekends. And you fill in the blanks, it was done. And um, so I continued on in that life through college. I was a pre-med major, but I didn't want the responsibility of going to med school right away. And so I was like, you know, what is, what is it that I could do? Like I had this adventurous spirit and I wanted to travel and I wanted to do something like good and great and I don't know, humanitarian. And so I, I ended up going into the Peace Corps. And I was sent to a country in Africa, Morocco. It was a Muslim country. And I, I really didn't even know uh, anything about Islam or the Middle East or Africa or anything like that. All I knew was that I really sincerely in my heart wanted to help, you know, and I wanted to do something that was kind of exotic and adventurous and, and all that sort of thing. And so I was so pumped, you know, to go. And I went and in Morocco, I learned a couple of languages in training. Yeah, like 10 weeks of training, you know, to get you prepared for this. And uh, so the first four weeks of training, I, I learned uh, uh, Moroccan Arabic, Darija. And um, that was good. And I studied really hard because uh, I took it seriously. I really wanted to help. And then I was going to be sent to a Berber area, the original inhabitants of Morocco. And so I started learning Berber. So the next four weeks, I learned Berber. So I've studied really hard and, and everything. At the end of this whole process, 10 weeks, uh, four weeks of language at each, you know, language just seems pitifully un prepared, you know, insufficient for this. But they literally, uh, this is how they do it in the Peace Corps, at least they did for, for us. They said, all right, this is your, this is the map, you know, of Morocco, and here's, here's your site, you know, good luck. And you, it was a, it was just this immersion-like experience, you know, it's like you, you just jump in, you know, and that's, that's kind of the point, you know, that you, by this time, you can do public transportation, and you can make your way down there, and you could present yourself, and maybe there was somebody that lived there before you, and maybe not, so I go to this new area, and I'm all about this, like, there's no fear in my mind, like, this is, this is the real deal, I'm going to do it, so I took, like, three days of public transportation, you know, to get down to this site, and I get there, and I pump up, come off the bus, and I'm so pumped, I go up to the the first guy that you see, because you don't talk to the women, you know, in that society. And I extended my hand. I said, Salam alaikum. Peace be with you. And he says, alaikum salam. And also with you. And I thought, this is going swimmingly. It's like, <laughs> I'm just like, I am envisioning the impact, you know, the, uh, the humanitarian impact that I am going to make 
you know, like for decades to come. I mean, this place will be changed. And, uh, and I will help people help themselves, you know, because that is what I came to do. <laughs> and those were the last words I understood all day. <laughs> I'm not kidding about this. So in the initial exchange, like in all Muslim countries, you say salamu alaikum, like in classical Arabic, but then you transition into the local dialect, whatever it was. And for me, it was Berber, right? And so I start knocking out some Berber and everything. And these Berbers are looking at me like, I am crazy. You know, it's like, I do, you know, they clearly did not understand. So I, I, I use this age old technique that Americans are really good at. I spoke louder and slower, you know, it's like they are going to get it when I articulate it loud and slow. And they did not get it at all. There was no part of this that they understand. And when they spoke back at me, and they don't get loud and slow, they just speak so fast, you know, no matter what. And I could not understand a thing. All right. The, the whole point is I had actually learned the wrong language, okay? In training, that was what I was experiencing. Wrong language. Thank you, Peace Corps. You know, your tax dollars and good work, you know? So I was there the first day, and it slowly dawned on me that this communication thing was not happening, okay? And uh, so I didn't, here's the thing about it, I didn't have a place to stay. Like, I didn't have a house, and I didn't have any food, and I had some stuff on my back, and I had money in my pocket, you know? But, you know, to use an ancient theological term, I was screwed, you know? <laughs> I was just really up the creek. I was screwed. You know, I had no idea what to do. And I'm supposed to be helping these people. And I feel like kind of a babe that was dropped off at, at their doorstep of their culture. And um, so what happened that night was absolutely magical. So this, um, th this family, uh, this very poor, impoverished uh, Berber family noticed my plight and uh, invited me into their home. And I accepted uh, because I was hungry. <laughs> and Moroccans cook good. You know, they have great food. So I, I went in and I, and I ate and I stayed and they took care of me. And we used like sign language and they basically intuited that I basically needed to, you know, needed food and shelter and all that. And I lived with them for the first two and a half months that I was there. Two and a half months. And to them, it was like this glorious privilege to... Uh, to welcome me and to serve me and to feed me with whatever like meager rations that they had because they had this huge family, live in this very small place and everything, but they give me anything, you know? And, uh, and I needed, you know, their help desperately. I needed that. And it was slowly dawning on me and I didn't even know it that this was going to be an experience that was a little different from what I thought. I thought I was going to go over there with all of this eternal wisdom and knowledge and just download it in this glorious display, you know, that, they would, that would help them and just rise their culture up out of the ashes or whatever. And that narrative was not playing out at all. Matter of fact, it was almost like inverted, like I actually needed their help in this really deep and desperate and obvious way. And so that needed to sink in, you know, a little bit into my heart. 
So the next thing I started noticing is that these, these Muslims, they talk about God. Like once I start picking up the, the language slowly, uh, that they, start, they talk about God all the time. And not just in like these really fundamentalist or institutionalized way. It was like an, 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 an integral way. Like it was natural to them to talk about God. They went through every doorway in the name of God. And they ate in the name of God. And they had you know, haircuts in the name of God. And matter of fact, in the Berber culture that I lived in, they had no future tense. They literally did not have a future tense. They would say the present tense and say one word. You know what that word is? Inshallah. Inshallah, which means God willing. God willing, I do this, you know, I go to the market, and if you forget to say, inshallah, they will remind you, you know, if you try to say tomorrow, I go to market, they'll say, inshallah, God willing, you go to the market, you don't control your ways, you don't control your life, you know, it's surely by the will and the grace of God that you can do anything in, in life, and so, I was, you know, I had long jettisoned religion and all that. You know, I was just really in it for the cultural and humanitarian experience. So I was just kind of, I'd respect, respectfully do that. And I wanted to, you know, be able to communicate. So I just say those things. So I didn't, I'd pick up that language like, like that. So uh, as, as much as I, I, I started realizing that they spoke about God all the time, this is very important to their culture, I thought I should learn something more about it. So I picked up a copy of the Koran. So I got a Koran and I started reading the Koran. And this was very interesting to me. And I'll make a long story very short. But I read through the Koran and it was, it was like, it wasn't a spiritual experience as much as it was like this real appreciation for like the similarities. There was extraordinary similarities like between the Bible that I read as a kid and, you know, this text. And that surprised me. I thought that this was going to be like something totally different and something with that horns came out of it, you know? And I was like, no, that wasn't quite it. Yes, there were some differences and sometimes some major differences, but there was a lot of similarities and that struck me. So that was interesting. And I, it was kind of freaking me out in one way because I was picking up a religious book. You know how long it would have been since I picked up a religious book? I did not care at all about God by this time, at all. So reading about God and I'm reading about, you know, Islam and this is helping me with the Muslims that I'm living with and everything. And then I got this package. I got this package in the mail. And, you know, when you're in the Peace Corps and you get a package, it's like, it's a big deal, you know, because you, they, your friends and your family, they send you like vital stuff like peanut butter, you know, and like chocolate and stuff. And you haven't had that stuff in a long time. And so you are just so pumped. And I, kind of like, like opening that letter, like in the ninth grade, every time I got a package, like it was a solemn occasion. Like I didn't just rip it open. No, I carried it proudly back to my village, you know. And it was like an hour hike from the post office back to the village. And I brought it in. I'd rip it open, you know, and this whole thing. So I got, got this one, so pumped, opened it up. I was so excited. And I pull out the very first thing that was, that was in there. The biggest thing that was in there was this book. And I pull out the book and I flip it over. You know what the title was? The Holy Bible. You know what I did with the Bible? I didn't open it up and I didn't start reading it. I lifted it over my head and tomahawked this thing so hard onto the table. I slammed the Holy Scriptures down on the only table that I had. You know, by this time, like I had this little, you know, abode that I lived in and everything. I was straight up pissed that my friend from home had sent me a Bible. 
because I had been there. I had done that. I get your faith. You've been trying to share it with me for a while, but I'm not into it, you know? So thanks, but no thanks. Okay? I don't need that. That's kind of like for people that need a crutch, in my opinion. It was like, I'm good. I'm on my way, you know, to something. I'm making my own way. So I don't need that. But about, I don't know, six, seven hours later, I realized I really don't have anything else to do, <laughs> you know? Because when the sun goes down and you have no electricity, the only thing that you could do really is maybe pull out a headlamp and start reading or something. And so I would do that. It's sort of reading. I just read, read everything that I had. And I got done with the, the Koran, and so that was done. And I'm sitting there just resenting the fact the only thing that I had to read was the Bible, you know? I'm, I'm not doing it, you know? I'm not doing it. And I was like, oh, gosh, I'm so bored. You know, it's like, what should I do? So I finally picked it up. And that was pretty much like the attitude that I had in picking it up. And my friend encouraged me to, hey, start reading in the New Testament, you know. And as you're exploring these other cultures, please explore the life that you could have in Jesus Christ. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And I started opening. I, I, and this Matthew account was one of the very first things that I read because it's only four chapters in. And I started reading the New Testament. And I literally, I'm telling you the truth, I could not put it down. I could not put it down. It was like this weird thing. I was like having this out-of-body experience where this was magnetic, that somehow in these red letters I was encountering something that I'd never encountered before in my life. I didn't know what it really meant. I didn't even know what I was getting wrapped up in, but all I knew is that I couldn't wait. And it was during the time of Ramadan, January 19, 1997. And I, I would wake up very, very early, like 40, 30 in the morning. And, uh, you, and we were, you're fasting, you know, of course. And I would read the scriptures. And I would, when I would wake up in the morning, I couldn't, I literally, once I realized I, I was, was, was awake, I would just grab the, the Bible and I would open it up to where I'd left off before and I'd start reading. I couldn't not stay away from it. I was just being pulled, undeniably being pulled into this. And it was the, the gospel of John in the sixth chapter, and I don't really know if I can make any sort of deep theological connections between the sixth chapter of John and its Eucharistic discourse and all this kind of stuff. I don't really think I was thinking that deeply, but it just so happened that it was the sixth chapter that I had this experience where it it was what I call the game over. It was just game over. And I realized I had, I had been running. I literally, I had been running for so long, for so many years. I had been running away. I had been running away from God and running into whatever my own plan was to make my life what it is and what the world would accept. And so I could hear those words, you know, of not maybe come follow me, but I accept you. You're good. You're loved. You're worthy. Whatever it was, I'd do whatever that took. And in some ways, I had epic fails, which I've shared with you about it. But then other ways, I was succeeding and I was going and I was making my own way. And so this was all good until I met Jesus Christ, like right here in the scriptures. And he was saying, you, I see you. I choose you. Come follow me. And when he saw me, I felt for the first time absolutely transparent 
like almost like this naked experience where the light of God shone on me in ways that revealed every dark corner and secret and shame and regret that I had in my life. And I had a lot of it, a ton of it. And I felt like this small. I felt so dirty and ashamed and, you know, wrongheaded and empty and everything that you could feel. I felt that in the light of Christ. And yet this much bigger, much deeper, much more penetrating reality was, was shining on me. And that is, I see all of that, Michael. I see all of that, all that darkness and all of that rebellion, all those ways you tried to make it on your own. I see all of it and I love you anyway. I love you anyway. I choose you. I see you. I want you. And like in the testimony, not just a little bit of you, I want all of you. I choose all of you. And I, I literally thought these words. I thought, if, if this God, and I just read about, you know, these other ideas about God, but if this God could see me for all that I have been and all that I have done and love me anyway, this is the words that came to my mind. I could follow that sort of God then I'll follow him. I, I don't know any greater love than that. And so if there's anything that could then for, for, forevermore define my whole life, it would be that moment where I understood that no matter what I'd done, this God who had created me lovingly and waited for me like in this, this, uh, this thing that the kids did, you know, up here with this God figure who was kind of in the, in, the, in the background and trying so desperately to reach through all that other stuff, you know? That was so God, like with me. And yet in this kind of moment of clarity, like he reached through my heart and grabbed a hold of it and said, I choose you, come follow me. And I said, I will. And I've never stopped. Mostly, I don't know, I'm crying. But mostly it's because I don't, I don't know what else to attach to. You know? What, what else could you attach to? Like nothing. There's, no, there's nothing more that I could secure my life to attached to than him. Like without even understanding the meaning behind the, the calling of the first disciples, the experience was the same. It was the same. Yes, the world has told you all of these things that have undermined and limited and squelched your worth and your sense of purpose and the love that I have for you and said, don't listen to any of that. I, your creator, your savior, your deep redeemer, I choose you. And I'm calling you out of the darkness into the light. I choose you. And you're clean in me. And you're whole in me. So I don't know the messages for you. I really don't know the messages that have maybe quietly been taking root for maybe decades in your life about how you're not enough, whatever that blank is. You're not 
smart enough or good enough or pure enough or good looking enough or skinny enough or whatever it is. You just insert the blank. And I have plenty of them that I was like living into all my life and trying to like overcome or ignore or medicate. I was just trying so desperately to deal with all of that. But whatever it is for you, have you ever come to that point where you have experienced deep in your heart that Jesus Christ saying those words to you, that I, I get it, I know you. If there's anybody that knows you, I get it. I've seen it all. I see every single moment. I count every like, hair on your head. I know it all. So you can't hide from him. It's like what I was trying to do and run from him. He knows it all. And yet, have you ever sat in that experience where you've heard him say, and I love you anyway? And you've heard it because I know you've heard it, but have you received it? Have you received it like right there to the point where you just let go of everything else because nothing else makes sense. And that's the way that it was meant to be. That's when you can start living into this abundant life. You'll never get there if you're still white-knuckling life to try to control it and to try to get it for yourself. You'll never get there. So just, just stop. I would urge you, maybe, maybe many of you have had that experience where you've said, yes, you've heard that call and you followed him. But how many more times do we have to learn the same lessons in life? I, I need to learn. I am so bullheaded and ignorant. I need to, 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 to learn the same things over and over in life. Just ask my wife, you know? It's uncanny. And this is perhaps the deepest one that all of us need to relearn is that God who loves you and sees everything and loves you anyway and calls you out and says, you, I choose you. Come, come and follow me and let this define your life. That's the whole point. If you're doing anything religious and just kind of piling it on but haven't, haven't experienced that, I'm not sure that we're there yet. It's at the core. So somehow this weekend, maybe even now, that you can sit and you could even quietly say to God, maybe it's even a whisper because it's a little scary to, to do that, but to sit in that and to say, okay, you got me. I'm not running anymore. Jesus You speak my name. And the name of every single person here. And their spouses and their children and their families. And you speak our name. And you look into our eyes. 
and you say, I choose you. And we feel the weight of mercy that we haven't deserved it and yet we know this is real and so we stand humbled and yet filled and illumined by the whole meaning of our lives and we are so thankful, Lord. So thank you. And Lord, give us the courage to say yes to this great unknown of your love and to drop whatever props that we're holding that we feel like will give us life or worth or value or love. Will we drop those things and take your hand and be embraced and turn us into the children that you made us for? so that we could uh, love our, our spouses and our kids and our communities well and be the body of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, the name that is so mighty. Amen. Thank you, Michael. We're gonna move